Good early afternoon, everyone. Welcome back. It's Danny Haifong. Be here with you for about 90 minutes. I have more than a few stories, more than a few developments that I want to get into today with you. So while you are here, of course, be sure to drop a like, be sure to subscribe to the channel, hit that notifications bell. And of course, be sure to support the channel if you are able at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. That is the best way to support all of my work, including that which happens right here on the left lens. So again, good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're having a good Tuesday wherever you are. There are more than a few things that I want to get into today. I'll be with you for about 90 minutes. I have two particular, well, three developments. Two of them are, are deeply connected. And then maybe I'll have time for a little bit of a bonus conversation, bonus issue topic that I want to get into. But if not, it will have to wait. Nonetheless, while you're here, of course, hit that like button, subscribe to the channel, share this stream. Be sure to hit that notifications bell so you know when I go live. And also, if you are able to, of course, the best way to support my work is at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. You can see it right here uh, on the stream. And uh, be sure to click that link uh, in the description to support this work. And maybe at the end, I'll get into a story where uh, supporting this work becomes even that much more salient and important. So let's get started, though. Okay. There's been a lot happening, a lot happening around the world. There's been a lot happening just in general. A lot of people have rightfully been paying attention to the aftermath of the successful unionization effort at Amazon at Staten Island's facility. And of course, that is an incredibly important topic. And again, couldn't be happier that Amazon has finally been met with successful resistance and organization among its workers. So again, congratulations to the Amazon workers. And it looks like they are moving on to even more targets uh, more Amazon targets. They're looking to organize uh, union efforts all across the country at Amazon. And that's a pretty exciting development. So that's not what this stream is about, though, because I wanted to give an update on some uh, key issues regarding imperialism. And one situation I find very interesting is what's happening in Pakistan. And Pakistan is a country that doesn't get much attention in the mainstream media at all, in corporate media, unless it's talking about U.S. wars in the Middle East. Pakistan doesn't really receive much attention in the corporate media. And even in the independent media, Pakistan is kind of an afterthought, right? And Pakistan is located in a very central position, right? Uh, India, Afghanistan, uh, these very important countries, this very important region, resource-rich region that has been the target of the U.S.'s endless wars. It's very important. And Pakistan is no less important than any other country that exists there that 
either deals with or aligns with or both the machinations of U.S. imperialism. So recently, Pakistan has come under the fire of U.S. regime change efforts. And it sounds kind of strange, right? Why would Pakistan be targeted for regime change? And most people probably don't know because Pakistan doesn't make headlines. Really, how most people view Pakistan and the U.S. and West is just an extension of Afghanistan, the extension of the Middle East, being rife with terrorism and instability. And uh, Pakistan has experienced just horrific consequences from U.S. wars, right? Because U.S. special ops have operated in the region. We know that drone strikes have killed thousands of civilians in Pakistan over the years. The United States has used Pakistan as a training ground for Mujahideen-like fighters, jihadist-type fighters, right? There has been a long history of the United States meddling in Pakistan, and now it's coming to a head because the world is changing the world situation is developing in a manner that is not of the U.S.'s liking. And it's very important that we understand this and understand why Imran Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, why the Pakistani government would be targeted for instability, for destabilization, for regime change. And so there's a really interesting story about this right there was a no confidence vote that was staged in pakistan's parliament that failed just a few days ago it failed it failed miserably and it was an attempt to essentially delegitimize the prime minister and shape policy in pakistan and it appeared on the surface to be sim simply an internal matter right a matter of internal politics but as this article, this report suggests, and I'm going to pull it up here, uh, Pakistan PM Imran Khan saved from a U.S. planned regime change effort by Stephen Sawini uh, at Mideast Discourse. This was actually likely, right, there's still more investigation that needs to be done, but this was likely a regime change operation, this attempt to vote down Imran Khan as having no confidence, right? As there being no confidence within the government, of his administration. And it seems strange. It seems like out of the blue. Why would this happen? Well, let's go over this article because it really does show why he would be targeted. And surprise, surprise, it really does have a lot to do with Pakistan's growing partnership with Russia and especially China on all levels, right? But Pakistan has become a very reliable partner to Russia and China and vice versa. And so really, the attempt to oust them is a part of this war that the United States is waging, leading, that imperialism is leading against a multipolarity. So... I am going to, yeah, let's review this, okay? So Pakistan PM Imran Khan was saved from a U.S. planned regime change op. And it says that he will remain in office after a no-confidence motion to be voted on today, which was April 3rd, so that, so that was a couple days ago. Uh, it was rejected. 
President Arif Alvi has dissolved the National Assembly after Deputy Speaker suspended the session and rejected the no-confidence motion on grounds of it being part of a foreign conspiracy, and Khan has asked his nation to prepare for elections. It appeared that Khan might have been voted out of office after he lost a majority in the National Assembly on Wednesday when a key ally quit his coalition, which could give the opposition 172 votes in the 342-seat House needed to force him out. The letter from the U.S. may be what saved his political life. So here's the thing about Imran Khan is that he says he has a letter that was given to him, that was leaked to him from U.S. diplomatic cables, and we'll get into what it said. So we know which are the places, he says, from where the pressure is being exerted on us. We will not compromise on the interest of the country. I am not leveling allegations. I have the letter, which is proof says Khan, waving a letter in his hand. We will not leave Parliament until both decisions, a rejection of the no-confidence motion and a dissolution of the assemblies, are reversed, said Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz leader Mayam Aurangzeb. The Supreme Court has asked for the opposition to examine the National Assembly's move. So obviously there's a big political conflict here. The opposition has been supported by the United States for a really long time. Uh, Pakistan's politics are not at all sovereign in so many ways, but they are moving towards sovereignty, given the closeness now that they have between Russia with Russia and China. So he said, I will fight until the last ball, said the cricket's former cricket star turned politician. Khan said in his address to the nation that I will never I never wanted to be a slave to any country. When I came to power, I decided we will have an independent foreign policy. He added the times have changed and his government's when his government wouldn't accept the slavery of others. We will forge friendships with everyone. We won't become slaves. So that's a quote from him. And he accuses, so Imran Khan, the prime minister, is accusing the U.S. of wanting regime change. He claims that they threatened him and are seeking to oust him out of office, the United States, as he faced a no-confidence vote in Pakistan's National Assembly. So that, that Sunday, that past Sunday, he told the crowd at a rally in his support, which was a massive rally, that a foreign country was conspiring against him and political opponents working at his be at its behest. He claimed foreign funds in the hands of his political enemies were trying to topple his government and take control of the foreign policy of Pakistan. So today, he said in a live televised address on Thursday, he said, I have to talk about something important about the country's future. I decided to do this address live because Pakistan is at a defining moment and we have two paths ahead of us. The letter he said, the letter he sang was an official diplomatic cable from the U.S. to Pakistan, which stated, if the vote of no confidence succeeds, we will forgive you. Talking about Imran Khan, the prime minister. If it does not succeed and Imran Khan remains the prime minister, then Pakistan will be in a difficult situation. So that sounds like a threat. So the United States was threatening Pakistan, Pakistan's government. And there's been a long battle to try to get Pakistan's military, right, completely on the side of the United States, which is an old tactic, right? It's a very old tactic. Uh, the United States loves to be in control of the military of any country, regardless of whether it has full spectrum dominance over that country or whether that country is independent, like Venezuela, for example. It likes to try to infiltrate the military in order to gain control. I mean, that's how you stage coups, right? And this sounds like a coup in the making. So 
he says, Imran Khan said, I will never let this conspiracy succeed come what may, end quote. So that was a quote from him. But why? Why? So this this goes into, I think, really good reasons why. And I'll get into a bit more detail about especially the China connection. So the U.S. wants Khan out because he has been pursuing an independent foreign policy and was visiting Russian President Vladimir Putin on the day he launched the attack on Ukraine. Pakistan afterward refrained from participating in a U.N. Security Council vote on a resolution denouncing Russian aggression toward Ukraine. Khan chastised the 22 U.N. envoys for urging Pakistan to denounce Russia and was quoted as asking the envoys, quote, are we slaves and act according to your wishes, end quote. So there you go. He's talking in this manner of slavery, right, that the United States is trying to enslave countries, trying to impose its will on countries to get them to do what the United States wants in terms of its foreign policy. Khan attended the February 4th opening ceremony at the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing while the U.S. boycotted the ceremony. China is Pakistan's largest investor with over $60 billion in projects under the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And I'm going to be getting into exactly what that money is being spent on because it's quite incredible just how much integration now Pakistan has with China, right? And all the plans that they have, uh, China and the countries in the region have of integrating their economies and developing them further. So following a meeting of the two countries, foreign minister, two countries, foreign ministers in Islamabad, the Chinese foreign ministry stated that both countries expressed, expressed concern about the spillover effects of unilateral sanctions imposed on Russia because it invaded Ukraine. So both Pakistan and China took a joint position against sanctions against Russia. So in October 2021, this has been building up a bit. This is historic. The Biden administration delivered a cold message to Pakistan when the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, met Pakistan's foreign minister, Shah Mahmood Karishi, in Islamabad, she made it clear that Pakistan, to Pakistan that the Biden administration had downgraded the bilateral relationship. She said, We don't see ourselves building a broad relationship with Pakistan, and we have no interest in returning to the days of a hyphenated India-Pakistan, she added. That's not where we are. That's not where we're going to be. So there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of coldness. There's a souring of relations between a country that is very important, honestly, to the United States. Uh, political control of Pakistan would be extremely helpful for the United States' hegemonic ambitions. And it seems like there's a big souring because that's not happening. Senior Pakistan uh, government officials said that Sherman's visit, um, after the Sherman visit, that there was a diplomatic tension between the two countries that needed to be resolved and that Khan was angry that he had not received a phone call from Joe Biden. In Biden's speech marking the completion of the military withdrawal from Afghanistan on 31st of August, he said a new emphasis would be on regional diplomacy. The decision not to call Khan was a signal of Washington's displeasure with Khan's attitude to Afghanistan. Khan has described the Taliban takeover as breaking the chains of slavery. And the U.S., of course, wants the opposite, Pakistan to do the opposite. So, there's a lot here, right? There's a lot of tensions here between the United States and Pakistan because Pakistan is taking an independent foreign policy position. It is not rejecting the Taliban's control of Afghanistan right now. And it is moving closer to Russia and China, which is a huge problem. It is coming to the defense of Russia against sanctions, and it is building extremely close economic ties with China. And so there's a huge history of regime change, of course, right? And this author, 
Christopher Kelly and Stuart Laycock, two authors of the book, If America Invades, We've Invaded or Been Militarily Involved, Militarily Involved with Almost Every Country on Earth, says that it has invaded or fought the United States in 84 of 193 countries recognized by the UN and has been militarily involved with 191 of 193, a staggering 98%. This includes Pakistan, especially in the realm of proxy war. It is incredibly unstable militarily. This country has been incredibly unstable because of the way that the United States has bombed the country with drone strikes, because of the way that the United States has used its intelligence apparatus uh, in league with countries in the region to essentially use Pakistan as this almost training ground, right, for proxy forces. And this has been a long time coming since the 1970s. So obviously, and I'm going to end this share there, there's a lot here, right? There's a lot of reasons why the United States would be angry with Pakistan at this moment. Really, right, regardless, uh, Imran Khan, I'm, I'm not familiar with his domestic policy. I'm not familiar with his overall political ideology. You know, he's a former cricket player, but I'm not really familiar with him as a particular person, what his party, what his politics represent. But it's clear that any political leader that takes an independent foreign policy right now, the United States is going after them. The United States is attempting to pressure these countries, no matter what social character they may have, no matter what the character of their government is, they're going to pressure them because this Russia-Ukraine conflict has put the United States in a bit of a bind, right? The United States needs friends and the Russia-Ukraine conflict is showing that friends are not so reliable, right? And the United States has itself to blame for that because the United States has spent how many decades, how many centuries, right? Waging endless war, attempting even with its so-called allies to assert its dominance in a unipolar way. And that is now coming back to haunt the United States, the United States' empire. The chickens are coming home to roost. Blowback is here. And it's happening in Pakistan as well. So I want to talk about the China-Pakistan economic corridor because this is a huge component of the Belt and Road Initiative that China has as an overall strategic economic vision for integration and global development, South-South development and cooperation. And really the China... Pakistan Economic Corridor, which really launched at least officially in 2016, right, with the first project that was uh, became operational out of it. There, since then, right, since this initiative has been underway, there have been a lot of concerns about it. The U.S. is very concerned because the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is really it's almost this base, right, because of the re. I mean, the the importance of this for the region. You have plans for Xinjiang to be connected to Pakistan by rail, right? That is underway. There are projects to make that happen. And now with Afghanistan's new political transition, there are hopes that Afghanistan will also get into the interconnectivity realm, will build infrastructure and invest in Belt and Road projects so that it can also, it's massive wealth, right? I mean, trillions of dollars of mineral wealth reside in Afghanistan, that wealth can then go to developing the country 
and uh, integrating the country into what already is a resource-rich region, one where countries like Pakistan and India and others, even though India refuses to be part of the Belt and Road Initiative, nonetheless, this the Central Asian region too, right? These countries all have a very big opportunity right now to get themselves out of imposed, right, forced underdevelopment uh, from imperialism. And, and that's a huge threat to the United States. And the United States is very angry about the China-Pakistan economic corridor. Uh, they actually recently, just in the last few months, uh, I think earlier in March, uh, there was an attempt to get the military on the side of the, the United States was attempting to get a big portion of the military to renounce the Belt and Road Initiative and reliance and dependence on China and as and uh, attempt to get assurances that Pakistan would uh, move into the U.S.'s orbit economically. It didn't work and it's not going to work because what do they have to offer? I'm going to show you, right? The United States has zero to offer in the economic realm. The United States is not going to invest and roads and bridges and ports and development zones and economic development in Pakistan and public transit, that, that's not going to happen. Reforestation, but China is saying we can do these things. We can help Pakistan develop and get out of this extreme poverty, which has characterized the country for so many years. And so that article I just read about the regime change operation said that there's $60 billion USD being invested in the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And I'm going to show you what this money is being used for. So the Pakistan government actually has an entire progress update. Okay. Um, well, China and Pakistan. Uh, this is a China, this is a, a government of Pakistan website, but it's a CPEC authority, the Ministry of Planning, Development, and Special Initiatives, and CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, is one of them. So, just to give you an idea of how widespread, how massive this project is, I want to show you. Right. So here are the categories: there's energy, transport, infrastructure, uh, uh, Gwadar. Industrial Cooperation Special Economic Zone, Social Sector Development. And I believe Gwadar is like development project, development zones, right? So ports, cities, that kind of thing, urban development. And so I'm just going to go through each one. I'm not going to go through all of the projects, but I'm going to show you how extensive this is. So in terms of energy, you have one, two, three four, five, and these are all either operational or under construction, right? Uh, so you have 10 projects already operational, uh, energy projects. Then you have under construction, you have another uh, another uh, six, and then under consideration, you have another five. So you have a lot of already just in the, just in the realm of energy, you have more than 20 projects either operational, under construction, or being considered. That's huge. That's a, that's a huge number. That's just energy, right? And so you have uh, coal-fired plants. You have uh, other projects. You also have uh, green energy projects, solar parks here. Uh, 
400 megawatts, 600 megawatts now under construction or under implementation. You have hydropower dams and wind farms. Here you have a wind farm, right? These are just wind farm, wind farm, right? You have a lot of green energy projects as well. So uh, that's huge. That is huge, right? Because Pakistan was once a country that was energy deficient, that it did not have enough it did not have the capacity in terms of its development to use its resources to power the whole country. And now it does. Now it is actually a surplus country. Transport infrastructure. So here you have one, two, three, four, five, six uh, that have already been built and are operational. Here you have another seven, eight. Not, you know, now you have uh, another four projects under construction. And then in pipeline projects, Right. You have just so I mean, you just have so many here. Twenty four. You have long term projects that are under approval or are being discussed. But that's another 20 plus projects. Right. So we can go along the line. I think the most I mean, special economic zones are really important because it's all about building up uh, industrial development. So you have four of those plus uh, another five under uh, consideration. This is interesting, though. Social sector development. Okay, because a lot of people think that the Belt and Road Initiative is just China and partner countries in the Belt and Road just engaging in this relationship of exploitation where China is just going into countries and saying, give me your resources and sure, we'll build you bridges, but we're going to put you in debt for this infrastructure, right? We're almost like it's almost like a loan shark bank is how they try to portray China. But what's so ridiculous about this is you just go to CPEC website and you see the social and economic development that has happened under this uh, project and they list it, right? You have vaccine storage and transportation equipment that's been completed, right? These projects to put that into place. Poverty alleviation training. That doesn't sound very profitable for China to just train Pakistan to learn how to alleviate poverty in within its own country, right? To share ideas. Emergency relief supplies. For enhancing disaster preparedness. So vocational and technical education capacity build up project. That doesn't seem very profitable for China to go into another country and say, hey, we'll train your workers and we'll train uh, your people to be able to handle this technology and understand how to use certain equipment. I mean, that doesn't sound like a very, it doesn't sound like a realm of exploitation that. I think of when I think of something like neocolonialism or imperialism. Then you have Pakistan vocational schools, upgrading and renovation projects. So there you go. I mean, you have the renovation of schools. You have the provision of agricultural equipment and tools, which are under construction. You have the China-Pakistan Joint Agricultural Technology Laboratory. So you have all the overseas student scholarships, right? All these things drinking water equipment, all these things that are being, you know, under construction right now between China and Russia, uh, China and Pakistan in Pakistan, which I think shows that CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, is about a lot more, and the Belt and Road Initiative is about a lot more than just China exploiting other countries for its own gain. And so I'm going to read you a report now, okay? I'm going to read you a report now about the green 
aspects of this, right? The aspects of the of CPEC that are attempting to make the project a green project, a, a green infrastructure development project. So I want to I'm going to share a report in Xinhua, which talked about um, a recent meeting, right, that happened in December of 2021, where they talk about uh, China and Pakistan working hand in hand for a green CPAC. And it says that China and Pakistan are keeping their commitment to making chi the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor a green project and enable generations to have a green environment. Besides the Green CPEC initiative, the Chinese government and companies are also supporting Pakistan in its 10 billion tree tsunami program of the country's Prime Minister Imran Khan by vigorously participating and donating in the drive. So not many people know that China actually accounts for, I think, 25% of all reforestation that has happened in the world in China. And now this is saying that China is also going to help Pakistan's own project for reforestation, the 10 billion tree tsunami program, directly in addition to CPAC projects. So Chinese companies are working on CPAC projects in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, which have planted a large number of trees in their premises to support the drive. The Chinese embassy in Pakistan on Wednesday also donated 7,000 saplings for the program to support Pakistan's efforts in environmental protection. Pakistan's minister for climate change, Malik Amin Aslam, in a conversation with Xinhua, lauded the Chinese government supporting Pakistan's green vision, adding that the gesture of the Chinese government and people shows that both countries not only share the past, but also the future. So there you have it, right? I, I'm, we don't have to read this whole article. I just wanted to get into how, you know, China and Pakistan, their governments are supporting each other. And it says right here, nature conservation and practicing the idea of a green belt and road to promote high quality development within CPAC, within this cooperation agreement. So, I mean, this is a big deal. And I mean, this is a big reason why the United States does not want these integration projects to occur. Because you saw there, there are projects for poverty alleviation. There are projects to renew water systems, renovate water systems, to enhance Pakistan's energy capacity. I mean, all across the board, these projects will make the global south a more powerful place, a more sovereign place. They will make these countries will have more opportunities to conduct independent uh, policies to really assert their independence in ways that the United States does not want to see. And so this attempt to conduct regime change is all about breaking this multipolar world and breaking weaker, smaller, poorer countries away from Russia and China's orbit, from their alliance, from their allegiance, from their solidarity, right? That is what this is all about. And it's important that we are able to not only understand this, but also be able to point people in the direction of, well, this Belt and Road Initiative, this China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is really, I think, giving a lot of promise to a region that has not had much to be optimistic about. Look at what's happening in Afghanistan right now, right? I mean, Pakistan and Afghanistan are very close in terms of uh, regional politics, issues, right? They, they have both been played off each other for so long with regard to U.S. imperialism. 
And in Afghanistan, that country is being starved. I think it's like 170 babies. The Biden administration is killing children through the sanctions regime against the Taliban, sees the seizure of assets. I think it's billions worth of Afghan assets, much of which is aid, which the, because the economy was destroyed by U.S. occupation, Afghanistan became dependent on foreign aid. That foreign aid has been turned off, and now there's something like 170 babies per day dying in Afghanistan from preventable illness and diseases, malnutrition, etc., because of the United States, right? And so just with that understanding alone, it's and with that knowledge alone, we can kind of get the picture that CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, this multipolar world, this new Silk Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, all of this is a threat to the United States' agenda, to its plans. And so Prime Minister Imran Khan has lost his sort of luster to, you know, has, has become a, an enemy of the United States just because his government and his leadership is practicing an independent foreign policy. And so uh, we can expect things like this to continue, especially during this Russia-Ukraine conflict where there is a lot of desperation in the United States to try to organize the world into its camp to isolate Russia, and it's not working. And so I want to get into that. Let's get into now Russia because a good friend, Hillary Clinton, queen of chaos, master of destruction, uh, imperialist, Hillary Clinton is back. She has reemerged, come out of the caves of the imperialist uh, war criminality uh, career that she's had. She's come out of the caves again to rear her face to talk about the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And there are, there are a few interesting aspects of this, but let's just talk about Hillary Clinton first. I can't believe we have to talk about Hillary Clinton, but the establishment keeps her relevant despite the fact that she has lost two elections, one of which was to a celebrity billionaire who they spent billions of dollars, the Clinton wing of the party spent billions of dollars, the mainstream media, corporate media, billions of dollars to demonize, and yet she still lost to him. She's behind the Russiagate hysteria. I mean, the Clinton legacy, right, starting with Bill and Hillary together, moving into today is just one, and we'll get into her legacy in particular around wars in a minute, but, but this legacy just continues to be relevant, unfortunately, for all of us because the establishment finds her to be one of their most loyal servants. And really, she is, um, in, the, in terms of status, she is right there as one of the most beloved among the ruling elite because of just how she will literally do anything for the war machine. I mean, I mean that's, that's her now. Her biggest, I think, aspect of her legacy is that. Uh, not to mention just how she has championed some of the most reactionary domestic policies around racist police violence and mass incarceration and immigration and all of that. But we're talking in neoliberalism and destroying welfare and all of that, deregulating the economy. She's a, a huge proponent of Wall Street, 
but it's the wars, right, that she cannot get enough of. And so when she reemerges of late, it usually has to do with some kind of U.S. foreign policy question. And so she has now weighed in. So Hillary Clinton has weighed in on this issue of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And while I'm pulling this article up, make sure that you like this video. Make sure that you are subscribing to the channel, that you are sharing the video, hitting the notifications bell. And of course... Uh, considering if you're able to, and, and please, if you're able to, please do subscribe to the channel, so, uh, subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifang. It's how you support all of my work. You can find all of that in the description. So we are going to talk Hillary Clinton now. Hillary Clinton was on Meet the Press recently, this past weekend. <laughs> And she said, we need to double down on the pressure on Russia. So Hillary Clinton, the former Secretary of State, called on the U.S. and its allies to double down on their pressure of Russia. She says, quote, the only way that we're going to end the bloodshed and terror that we're seeing unleashed in Ukraine and protect Europe and democracy is do everything we can to impose greater costs on Putin. There are more banks to, that can be sanctioned there is an increasing call to do more on gas and oil, which is ironic, and I'll get to that later. She said it's now time to double down on the pressure. So those are her comments, right? And then she said we are really looking at this with eyes wide open and seeing very clearly the threat he poses, Putin, not just to Ukraine, but really to Europe and democracy and global stability. And she also said that Putin and Russia need to be excluded from the G20 summit, all of that nonsense. So Hillary Clinton has never met a war that she doesn't like. So we shouldn't be surprised that now she's going on Meet the Press and talking about how we need further aggression toward Russia. I mean, she was a huge champion of NATO expansion. She was a huge champion of the coup in Ukraine. She um, was a huge champion of of the initial sanctions on Ukraine, right? Uh, this, so this all happened after she was Secretary of State, but nonetheless, uh, she was a huge champion of all of it. She was very anti-Russia. She was. She, it was the pivot, the pivot to Asia and the Russian containment policy. I mean, we could, we can, we can view that as all sort of hers, right? And we know that she loves no-fly zones. She wanted to destroy Syria. She destroyed Libya, all to build up this environment to target russia and china she's a hawk she's a neocon hawk and uh, she has never met a war she doesn't like and so i just want to review a bit right about how dangerous hillary clinton is just by the what she has supported in the past and when she calls for more sanctions she is not talking about democracy she is not talking about the 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 fate of the world or anything uh, about uh, Putin, right? Putin is just a scapegoat, right? Russia is the scapegoat. But when Hillary Clinton has advocated and championed certain policies, usually there are huge costs. And so let's add some of those costs up. This was written by Khan Hallinan in 2016. So during this election period, right? And uh, it's a little too... Uh, so let's add some of this up. Okay. And we don't need to go over this whole thing because it's a little bit of an outdated article. But so 
we're going to go to just some of the costs of some of the things that she's championed. So we know about her vote on Iraq. She supported the invasion of Iraq and that killed a million Iraqis. She also supported the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, right? And that killed about 220,000 Afghans as of 2016. We're not even counting what's happening now. Okay. And we know that there are millions of refugees as well. So hundreds of thousands of people in Afghanistan have died because of the U.S. occupation. And those deaths keep mounting now that the U.S. has turned this war into an economic war on Afghanistan. In Libya, right? She was the huge proponent of the no-fly zone on Libya. She championed the invasion of Libya. We came. We saw he died when Muammar Gaddafi was brutally assassinated in the streets of Libya by jihadists that Hillary Clinton and the United States were supporting. But 30,000 people died in that war, and about 50,000 were wounded. And we know that hundreds of thousands, now we can say millions, given how the scale of the destabilization of Libya had spillover effects across North Africa, across the Middle East. And then we know that she was a huge champion of the intervention in Syria, the occupation of Syria, the proxy war on Syria, which also caused a huge number of refugees. And of course, Ukraine, right? She supported all of that. And <clears throat> there were thousands who were wounded or killed during that coup attempt. Now we have the situation in Yemen, which he also supported Saudi's invasion, the Saudi Arabian invasion of Yemen. The U.S.-Saudi blockade choked off imports. We have 13 million people in Yemen with no access to clean drinking water. You have 6,000, thousands of people in Yemen have been killed by the Saudi Arabia onslaught, the military onslaught. And it's the worst humanitarian crisis maybe in modern history, right? So that's this is just some of it. In Syria, quarter of a million people dying. She supported the forces, right, that invaded Syria, the proxy forces, right? They were the same ones that invaded Libya in many ways. And then... Right then, you then this article says, how do you calculate the cost of the Asia pivot? Well, the costs are also many, to, especially to those countries that are occupied by the U.S. military, Guam, Okinawa. Right, these countries languish economically, militarily, socially. So, this is that's just like a brief. I mean, that's just really a brief review of just some of what she's for. We that didn't even talk about the coup in Honduras in two thousand nine that led to a long period of a U.S.-backed dictatorship that only has recently been reversed with the election of Xiomara Castro. So, I mean, there are just so many flashpoints, right? And then so that didn't even mention Israel. Harry Clinton being a huge champion of Israel, pushing Obama, right? Being right there by Obama's side as he signed that uh, uh, monumental, massive agreement, partnership agreement, with Israel about $3.8 billion per year over the next decade, which Trump reinforced. But Hillary Clinton is a hawk. She's a Zionist. She's an imperialist. And so when she calls for sanctions on Russia, she's not calling on them for democracy or for Europe's benefit. She is calling for sanctions to starve Russia and to eventually overthrow Russia's government. That's the hope, right? And I think she's particularly focusing on sanctions 
because the military situation is deteriorating, right? I don't think that there are enough weapons in the world that can really uh, shift the overall trajectory in the Russia-Ukraine war, which appears to be um, a long kind of conflict, which Russia will continue to aid the east of Ukraine in, in ensuring that its interests are met, both eastern Ukraine's and as well as Russia's. And, and I think that that war militarily has reached a point where the propaganda is just going to continue. Right now you have in Bucha, right, this massacre that supposedly was all Russia's doing, while there's a lot of conflicting reports that actually it was uh, Ukraine's forces. It was uh, the forces that Zelensky apologizes for, right? Uh, the Azov regiment, I mean, the Azov regiment is basically defunct, but uh, there is a lot of speculation, and it seems like a lot of evidence now that, in fact, uh, this, what happened in Bucha, what's happening all across the country is a lot more complex than just Russia's going around killing people, which is how it's being portrayed in the corporate media. No, that this conflict is much more complex, that it is about a lot of the internal problems that are festering and developing in Ukraine and have developed in Ukraine because of what the U.S. did in 2014-15, turning that country into a basket case rather than being the breadbasket of Europe, the breadbasket of Eurasia. Ukraine has been turned into a basket case economy, government, and a real war-like government, a war zone that didn't start in 2022. It didn't start in February 24, 2022. It started in 2014 during the coup and it's already even before that the orange revolution of 2004 right the u.s supported uh, very far-right forces there in 2011 they tried again to uh, really support these very far-right reactionary forces you had right Stepan banderas and a lot of these far-right nazi figures being eulogized and celebrated in ukraine prior to Viktor Yanukovych coming into power. And then, of course, uh, his administration was pretty short-lived, unfortunately, because of the United States and its coup attempt. So when Hillary Clinton calls for sanctions, when she is being a hawk toward Russia, it has nothing to do with anything except the imperatives of this long-term, full-spectrum dominance strategy than U.S. imperialism has. It's about starving. It's about destroying. It's about plundering and looting. It is about killing. It is about butchering people. I mean, it is really about intimidating the world so the world will do what the United States wants, which is to be its economic, uh, right, its economic hub, its terrain, its playground for super exploitation, and of course, of militarization, which helps to fuel not just the plunder of capital, but also the profits of the military industrial complex. That's what this is about. It's about the profits of capital and growing a huge industry now, the military industrial complex, the weapons manufacturers fueling their lust for war. And so Hillary Clinton, of course, is drooling. She's drooling over the Russia-Ukraine conflict. She wants more sanctions, she says. More sanctions. 
more starvation, right? Due to Russia, like we did to Venezuela, due to like we're doing to Syria, due to Russia, what has been done to so many countries before Iran, killing needless thousands, also the United States can get what it's want, what it wants. That alone shows just how racist, how vile, how imperialist the United States' government and its political economy are. That at its core, killing is nothing but a means to expand the profits of this tiny few rich people like Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, right? These mega rich capitalists who are in control of a lot of the capital, right? Through their various institutions, through the world of finance, through the world of, of, of monopoly capital. So that's where we're at. And that's where, that's where Hillary Clinton is really setting her sights on. She wants to continue to benefit from this. I mean, at, at some point it becomes almost like this narcissism, right? She wants to continue to be on some level on top and to chime in to cement her legacy as this hawk so that she will be remembered among her class as one of the best and most loyal of the butchers, really, right? So that's Hillary Clinton. And so she's back reemerging. I'm sure we won't hear it won't be the last that we hear from her because it always seems like she is trying to get into the conversation and the corporate media because they love the Clintons and they love right the Biden camp, the Clinton camp. They love this camp, this in the DNC, which has been so loyal and so effective in so many ways, the Obama camp. Uh, they'll continue to bring them on. So uh, we should not expect anything different. But I want to talk about one last thing with regard to sanctions on Russia, because I think it's very interesting. So Russia, right, has been targeted by these enormous sanctions. I mean, the EU and the United States, the EU has done more sanctions than the United States, right? Went beyond the United States just because the United States, I mean, they demand, they asked, but Really, they were saying, you know, you, you better do this. And so the EU just bowed down, you know, yes, master, and went beyond what the United States even did. So you have, you know, these bans on oil and gas and imports of all kinds. You have these like kind of global sanctions on Russia, financial institutions, etc. There's a lot of gold missing from Russia. There's a lot of just straight up theft of Russian assets that are that is happening among the US and the EU. And you would think that Hillary Clinton would be satisfied by this. But we have to take into consideration that the US has been cheating on the sanctions. Yes, the United States has cheated on its own sanctions regime, meaning that there are still massive amounts of oil being shipped to the United States and being used by the United States to refine its own energy. And essentially what this means is that the United States' sanctions have been more talk than they have been, uh, more, more bark than they have been bite, okay? More talk than action. And so Moon of Alabama had a great article on this that I'm going to review with all of you because... I think it gets into the situation quite nicely. 
And I think this is why you keep hearing people like Hillary Clinton say, we need more sanctions, more, more, more. And it's because there's this very contradictory thing happening, right? There's a contradictory thing happening. The United States and Europe need Russia's energy supplies. You think, oh, the United States doesn't need it. It's energy, quote unquote, independent. No, it's a little more complicated than that. And I'm not an energy expert, industry expert, but Moon of Alabama, I think, does a good job helping us understand what's going on. Because the United States actually does need Russia's energy. Europe especially needs Russia's energy. So Moon of Alabama says that Europe must learn to cheat on its sanctions just like the U.S. is doing. So the European Union and China, so they this is April 1st, so this was about four days ago. So four days ago, right, this article was written, there was a China-EU summit that happened, and China rejected any pressure regarding sanctions, regarding the EU's foreign policy. And it said that Europe's weak strategic autonomy is a problem. So essentially what China said, and China's 100% right here, that China-EU relations should not be kidnapped by the Ukraine crisis and Europe should no longer be abducted by the U.S. in terms of its foreign policy. It will greatly undermine the EU's own interests, which is 100% true and 100% of what is happening, making it difficult to ensure economic recovery and people's livelihoods, and it runs counter to Europe's aim of pursuing strategic independence, which is true. Europe has, through the EU... In some ways, right, you even see it in some countries like France, for example, tries, especially in the realm of foreign policy, to have some independence. Nonetheless, with Russia, that has gone out the window, right, with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So moving on, right, so he reviewed uh, the uh, moon of Alabama, reviews when the current Ukraine crisis began, the U.S. announced that it had activated certain sanctions against Russia and told Europe to do the same. Europe decided to then deliver even more sanctions than it was told to do. With that done, the U.S. has quietly buried or circumvented some of its own sanctions, and it has used them to push European, so more European sanctions. So on March 8th, there was an executive order by Joe Biden, uh, import ban of Russian oil, liquefied natural gas, and coal to the United States, a significant action with widespread bipartisan support, according to the White House, that will further deprive President Putin of the economic resources he uses to continue this needless war of choice. I love that. They say it's a choice war, right? This this war is just all Russia and Putin's choice. They didn't have to. There were so many other things they could have done. That's what a lot of pundits are saying. But as we've said on this show, that's nonsense. It doesn't understand the actual situation that has been going on for years in the region. So, you know, the United States actually released all kinds of liquid all kinds of its own, right? It had some, it had released a lot of barrels of its own oil. But the executive order, right, says that the United States banned nearly 700,000, imported nearly 700,000 barrels of crude oil and refined petroleum products from Russia. All right. So that's how much the United States was importing before the ban. So we would think that these sanctions would then cut that off, right? Well, actually, Three weeks later, the U.S. is still importing Russian crude oil. So according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, which publishes a list of crude imports by country, 
the U.S. was still importing 100,000 barrels per day of Russian crude oil. So on March 7th, Moon of Alabama explained why the U.S. needs this oil. said summer U.S. refineries at the south of the coast are designed to only process heavy oil variants. Since 2019, the U.S. has blockaded heavy oil imports from Venezuela and replaced them from imports of heavy Ural variants from Russia. It has now sent two officials to Caracas, so that's why they sent to Venezuela, because there was... They sent two officials there to try to try. I don't even want to say try because it was a pitiful try. But that's why there was all of this. Okay, well, will Venezuela have the spigots turned back on in order to circumvent the impact of sanctions? And it didn't happen, of course, because as Moon of Alabama said, that would require the U.S. lift all of the sanctions and return confiscated companies and gold owned by Venezuela. Not going to happen anytime soon. Yes. So without heavy Russian Ural crude oil, the U.S. has no efficient way to create diesel and heating oil. Ooh, that's a pretty important thing that you need to be able to do. So I don't understand this stuff, but he just, uh, Moon of Alabama describes diesel and heating oil consists of long hydrocarbon chains. Lighter types of crude oil like lack these. There are ways to create longer hydrocarbon chains from shorter ones, but those processes are expensive. And of course, I don't think you're going to get Chevron or the or shell or any of these u.s corporations to uh do that it is much easier to start off with heavy crude oil and to break it down when needed so that's why russia is important it's important to have that russia has a lot of this kind of oil so diesel is what freight transport uses to deliver goods to consumers it's what industrial transport uses for fuel russian refiners cutting their processing rates in the wake of several ways of western sanctions already tight diesel supply is going to get a lot tighter so that's why there is potential for economic crisis with this. And that's why the prices still are going up. It's because this heavy diesel fuel is being sanctioned. But the U.S. still is cheating the sanctions and could cheat them to the point of actually negating their own sanctions. And thus, you see that a lot of this inflation is also just a money grab. It's a, it's a, it's a profit grab. It's just an opportunity to make up for any shortfalls or to just gain short-term profits in the immediate in response to instability, which is a lot of how the capitalist market works at this point. So, you know, yesterday, so this was the end of March, uh, 1 million barrels of crude oil per day were released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And so while this may lower prices a bit, it's not actually going to have a significant long-term effect, according to Moon of Alabama. And so while that remains to be seen, it's pretty clear that the U.S. is cheating its own sanctions and Europe is being basically bullied into adhering to sanctions, although still Europe is taking on and still is uh, consuming Russia's natural gas. And I said it this before, and I'll say it again. You cannot just turn off half of your energy supply and expect to survive economically in this day and age of capitalist development. No, there's no possible way that the so-called advanced capitalist countries in Europe can keep their lights on and can keep their industries going and can keep economic development happening without Russia's energy. And so that puts the United States, that puts Europe in a very difficult position because we're being told, right? Even at Shannon Sharp 
weigh in on this. You had all sorts of celebrities weigh in on this. They're saying we can pay all of that. You know, what did Jen uh, Psaki said? She may be an MSNBC host soon. She may not be the press secretary for Biden very, very long, much longer. But what did she say? She said, we need to pay this Putin tax, right? And these celebrities came with her, right? She, they, they've all been saying, yeah, we need to pay $20 per gallon. It's fine. Uh, you just need to do this for your country and all this nonsensical American exceptionalist garbage, right? But this masks, this kind of rhetoric masks actually how this inflation is really a symbol, really a manifestation of an economic crisis on the way, that Europe is actually very close to economic crisis, which would generate a larger capitalist crisis because of these sanctions, because the capitalist market cannot sustain turning off Russia's oil and gas from the world. And that puts the United States in very complicated positions with regard to Venezuela, Iran, and other countries that are also sanctioned and also isolated from the world capitalist market, especially the European and the U.S. market, right? So, I mean, just this is just, I mean, China, Russia, a lot of countries have been saying this is the United States shooting itself in the foot just to try and achieve what are military objectives, what are foreign policy objectives, right? Containment of Russia, destabilization of Russia, destabilization of Eurasia, trying to divide Russia and China, right? Try to drive a wedge between them. There's all this talk. China needs to get on the right side. China needs to come to the United States. It's like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. China will not do that. There's no way China will ever come to the United States and say, oh, yeah, we're, we're with you now. Right? No, because this, the world is different now. The world is not like it was 40, 50 years ago. The United States is on a downward trajectory and it knows it, right? The ruling class knows it. And so that's why they're desperately trying to play this game of how do we meet our objectives against Russia militarily while at the same time prevent and avoid, it, if at all possible, the economic fallout. But no longer is it possible for there not to be a significant economic fallout. And it's not like there haven't been past wars that the United States has either facilitated or have been directly involved with, which, which had huge economic costs. I mean, the U.S. war in Vietnam, invasion of Vietnam, had a huge economic cost. Arguably, it played a role in the oil crisis, right? The oil economic crisis of the 1970s. It played a role there because the United States became this huge military behemoth. There was this oil demand and supply crisis, supposedly, but really it was just a capitalist crisis kind of being brought to the head by a lot of what U.S. capital was doing around the world. And then uh, the same with Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, you could argue that the 2007-8 crisis and then uh, right after the 2000 dot-com crisis, Iraq and Afghanistan, these invasions, this huge military buildup also helped lay the basis. So the military buildup always kind of brings capitalism to a point of crisis. But at the same time, this is a bit different in the sense that rather than the United States being really the facilitator of this, it is the United States responding to Russia's reaction, right? How Russia has decided that it's no longer going to just take provocations and allow what's happening in eastern Ukraine 
to just happen to allow Ukraine to become a NATO country, right? This is a response to a situation the United States may not have been prepared for, right? Because there were all these talks, right, in the beginning, before February. The United States is, uh, intelligence is saying, there's going to be invasion, there's going to be invasion, there's going to be invasion. Russia's going to invade, Russia's going to invade. But a lot of that felt like, and I think we should not overestimate U.S. intelligence capabilities, it felt like there was a provocative aspect to that, that there was sort of this excuse to give lethal aid to Ukraine, which is what Hillary Clinton wants uh, as well, um, right? There was this excuse to do that. And that eventually precipitated this crisis as well. The U.S. played a big role in it. I mean, the U.S. refused to negotiate December 2021, right? This didn't... This wasn't all just Russia, a light bulb going off in the Russian government saying, okay, now we're just going to do this. No, there was a, there was this pace of events happening. There was, there were these events that were happening. And so it's, it's just critically important, I think, to understand that now the United States is in kind of a bind in, in Europe, arguably a bigger bind in that. This war, right, this this war that was provoked, Russia was provoked into it, and now they don't really have answers. And no matter what the United States does, adding on sanctions, maybe reversing some, Europe the same, the political outcomes of that are not going to be favorable to the United States, right? Because Russia no longer has to say, okay, well, your sanctions are, are, are going to starve us, and so we have to bow down. That's, that's not the world trend right now. That's not the global trend. The trend is that Russia will restructure, and then Russia will go to reliable partners, China and other countries, even India, that will say, no, we'll, we'll keep trading with you. A lot of the world's population within these underdeveloped countries or these developing countries, these non-aligned countries, they're saying, yeah, we'll still trade with you. Because it's ridiculous that the United States believes it has this kind of unilateral, extrajudicial authority in these matters. Even in this matter of Russia-Ukraine, it doesn't. It doesn't have that authority. And it's just ironic and laughable that the U.S. is now calling for war crimes investigations and the U.N. Security Council to do something. When the U.S. has constantly spurned the Security Council has constantly spurned the United Nations over and over and over again just to do what it wants. Pisaki, Condoleezza Rice, all of them say, we've never, you know, this is a violation of a sovereign country. And then literally they bypass the UN, ignore the UN, believe themselves to be international law when they're killing Iraqis, people in Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. When it is oppressed people, when it is black people, brown people, when it is poor people, when it is non-white people, it's okay to kill. It's okay to kill millions. Now that it's Ukraine and they can be framed temporarily as white, especially when there are you know neo-Nazis and pro-US forces in Ukraine's military doing the damage, then it's okay to now talk about international law, right? <laughs> Even though it's everything the United States has done in violation of international law, especially the coup, which provoked the crisis in the first place. So the U.S. is cheating its own sanctions, trying to negate this history, negate this context, and 
we have to be cognizant of that. We have to understand how that has occurred. And we need to understand that the only way to oppose U.S. imperialism, to expose U.S. imperialism for what it really is, is by understanding the contradictions and exposing the contradictions of this system, right? Because these contradictions are now becoming very glaring. They're becoming so apparent. And the contradictions all point to, I think, an opportunity for our forces, progressive forces, radical forces, peace-loving people, revolutionaries, those who want to see a transformation of this society, of this system, right? Those who want something like socialism or communism, then we need to take and seize this opportunity to show that this United States unipolar imperialist system is not foolproof. It is not omnipotent. It is actually becoming more impotent as we speak and as something like the Russia-Ukraine conflict continues to develop. So that's it for the story part of this, but I'm going to stay on for about another, I would say 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. Please do like the stream, like the video while you're here. Continue to stay with me because I do want to talk about something with all of you. So everyone stick around. So like this video, share it, subscribe to the channel if you have not yet. And of course, the way you support me is at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. That's how you support all of my work. So there's one thing I want to talk about, and it's healthcare because uh, I had one of those most really stressful days yesterday as we were navigating the marketplace. And it's not the first time that we have been in, in need of healthcare from the marketplace because of job transitions. There was a period where I was in school and I needed it. And so we, you all know the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. It's absolutely horrendous, right? It's absolutely horrendous. And there's nothing really defensible of it. And some liberals will try to say, oh, well, you know, at least it expanded health insurance. And at least uh, there's some good parts of it, like Medicaid expansion. All of that cannot negate how the Affordable Care Act is designed to divide the working class. And let me tell you why. Just from personal experience, this is now the second time. So, and I've also been on Medicaid in the past as well. Although Medicaid is usually a, a better experience, <laughs> um, in my you know in my opinion, I've had much better experiences on Medicaid than I have in this so-called marketplace. So the first time, you know, I was actually I had just gotten a job and was reporting income, and my insurance wasn't going to kick in through the employer for a while, and so. I was up for renewal and unfortunately I couldn't, you know, they would have just kicked me off of my Medicaid. So I couldn't just, usually I would just like not report, right? That's what most people do. And I've done that before too. So just to keep it for a little while longer. So I'm reporting, right? And I wasn't making too much money. I think my, you know, the job that I had gotten was something like, I think I was as a social worker in New York City, it's like 50,000, right? Not a lot of money annually. So... I just need healthcare for like a month or two. And so the marketplace plans that I was being offered were ridiculous. I mean, we're talking, you know, of course, it's in these tiers, bronze, gold, platinum, or whatever. 
and the bronze plan, there's like $4,000 deductibles with a pretty big premium. So basically don't get healthcare, right? Don't go see anybody. Uh, the premium is, was something like, uh, it was the cheapest one. So it was something like a hundred something, but the deductible is 4,000. And then you go the next tier up and you're paying more monthly, right? You're paying hundreds monthly. I think it was something like $500 on average. I think it was 450 to 600 on average for the, for depending on which company you go with per month with a slightly smaller deductible. I think it was something like a $1,000 deductible. It's like, okay, so we're just giving now, you know, this huge chunk of my income to healthcare per month while still having to pay a $1,000 deductible. Then you go up and there's, uh, you know, an even higher premium, right? We're talking about nearly $1,000 per month to get the platinum care with the less deductible and more coverage. So it really is this like Satan sandwich. You're either not getting healthcare because the insurance is not going to pay for anything with these bronze plans, or they're going to pay for a little bit more, but you're going to be paying them these premiums, like close to $1,000 per month. And I, this is a story across the board. And I mean, this is just profiteering. This is theft, right? And so I remember I just rejected it, right? And I just waited for the month, went without healthcare. Because there's always this fear, I think, in the minds of people, ordinary people like us, who are like, okay, we need health insurance for an emergency, right? Because we know that emergency, healthcare emergencies especially, bankrupt people, right? People need to get surgery. If they don't have insurance, people need to go to the ER. They don't have insurance. Then you're in the bag for thousands of dollars worth of tests and ambulance, right? Ambulances cost like $3,000 upwards sometimes just for the ride, right? So healthcare emergencies can be incredibly expensive, are incredibly expensive. And so people are like, okay, we need health insurance. So it's like you pay the money up front just so you have that maybe some, a bit of solace that you won't be uh, bankrupt in the future. It's a, it's a really, I mean, it's a sinister scam. It is, I mean, this is how these corporate health insurance companies really loot you. So again, we're in the situation getting, you know, today, yesterday, 2022, calling the marketplace in the same situation happens. And it just triggered all of this stress because we're in between insurances for like a couple of months. Um, as my wife starts a new job and her job is not going to give her insurance, I think for like 30 days after she starts. And that's not until the end of this month. And so we're like, okay, we need to get something. Her prior employer's plan has expired. Cobra is a scam. Cobra is even more expensive. And so we're searching these, researching these plans and we're like, whoa, we're going to be paying 500, 600 a month just to have healthcare that I don't know how much we're going to, for two months, how often we're going to use this. And there's still a deductible on it. I think there's still upwards of a thousand dollar deductible, not as bad, but they were giving us plans 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 before you can even get any coverage. And that's on these lower level plans, which do not cover anything. So this is what is meant by the health insurance companies dominating the Affordable Care Act, dominating the so-called marketplace, right? The so-called expansion of insurance. They are literally having free reign to give you these expensive plans that don't cover jack shit 
to bankrupt you, to get you into debt, and to essentially make it really difficult for you to live just so you don't feel like if you go to the hospital, you go to the doctor, you will have to pay completely out of pocket. And I actually had to go to an appointment yesterday because I've been going through some medical things and I was like, I got to just go to urgent care. And luckily in the neighborhood, I mean, I had to pay like a buck 40, 140 just to, you know, get checked up on. But I was like, if I went to my primary care without insurance, I would have been paying hundreds, thousands, maybe depending on what they did, you know, depending on uh, healthcare in New York is very expensive. So I was like, I'm going to just going to go to urgent care, just do it. I mean, it's just, it's just complete robbery. So I wrote about the Affordable Care Act, actually, and I'm just going to share the article. I wrote about this as part of Obama's legacy series, right? I did a 10-part series at the end of his administration in 2016. And I just want to review this really quick with you, just some of the components of this before I leave you, because I have to leave uh, by 2, maybe a little bit before, 2 p.m. Eastern. But so I wrote an article about his legacy, right? Part one, where profits for the monopolies, healthcare for those who can't afford it. Okay, you can't see the whole title here, but that's what it's called. So here you go. The Obama legacy, part one, profits for the monopolies, healthcare for those who can afford it, right? And so I wrote this in 2016 as the Bernie Sanders campaign was coming to a halt. And I said that the Obama administration bears much of the blame for the legitimacy crisis that the system is afflicted by. And this was a multi-part series. As Obama's reign goes to the history books and healthcare is a point of discussion in 2000. It was a point of discussion in 2016 elections. Medicare for all came up. There's massive popularity for that. People are disgruntled by this system. You have millions upon millions of people in healthcare debt like bankruptcy, right? I think hundreds of thousands go into bankruptcy every year in the United States. So the narrative for the last eight years under Obama has been confined, though, to the Affordable Care Act. That's what we heard. We didn't hear Medicare for all under Obama. And the debate has centered on the attacks the Affordable Care Act received from the Republican Party. And so we need to discuss what it's about. And what's not discussed is how Obama worked tirelessly to protect and fulfill the interests of the corporate healthcare system, the very one that we all experience if you live in the United States, and that I just had to really confront in the last few days. In 2019, he collaborated with the health insurance industry and its pharmaceutical counterparts to repress the demand for single-payer healthcare. So 2009 was where Obama put the kibosh, right, really silenced the single-payer advocates. And so people really wanted it, right? Organizations like Healthcare Now wanted single-payer healthcare. There was a majority in the House and the Senate. But Obama decided to broker with the insurance and monopoly pharmaceutical corporations instead and came up with the Affordable Care Act, which was modeled after the Heritage Foundation, this far-right think tank, in its model for healthcare reform, which was first instituted in Massachusetts by Mitt Romney. And then one of its key architects, Liz Fowler, wrote the bill as a former VP of WellPoint, which is now Anthem, which is a, a huge insurance corporation, and now is in a lucrative position with Johnson & Johnson, which is a big pharmaceutical company. So from its very roots, the ACA was destined to consolidate the corporate health insurance and pharmaceutical industries control over healthcare. 
So under the law, this is outdated now, the mandate to possess health insurance no longer really. It's state by state now. So I know in New York State, they, they got rid of the tax mandate. So you're not penalized tax-wise for not having health care anymore. But that was a big part of the bill, and it's what the Republicans jumped on, that you were actually going to pay a hefty tax penalty for not having health care. So working in unemployed people without employer-sponsored health care were forced at that time, but still are forced by coercion to choose from a system of government-subsidized corporate health insurance plans, meaning that the government would administer plans that corporate health insurance companies were providing. Like, for example, these Fidelis plans. Uh, we were looking at Fidelis Gold, Fidelis Bronze. This, These had all these huge, uh, huge deductibles and premiums that were confronted with, which are only to pay for really substandard coverage, right? And so I talk about this, platinum plans are supposed to cover 90%, which means 10% are still you in the bag for. That's a lot still, if you think about the cost of certain things. And then bronze plans are the least expensive, but cover just about 60%. So that's not a lot of care. And so, you know, Medicare expansion, uh, has been argued as a reason why to support the ACA, uh, but 22 states opted out of that. And so the government subsidies, because there are these subsidies, they only cover about 70% of any of the costs for silver plans, which a lot of people have been telling me are just scams into themselves because of the high deductibles. So majority of Americans earning less than 30,000 per year choose the bronze plan, obviously. And that's the case, you know, I think across the board for people who are low income. And one of the big impacts of the Affordable Care Act was to undermine employer health care for especially unionized shops, union employers. And so actually Unite Here detailed how the profitability of the exchange is far outweighs the punishment for not providing health care to workers. So what the Affordable Care Act did was say, OK, you're an employer. You need to give health care to your employees, but the fine was only $2,000, I think, for every worker that goes uninsured, while it could cost up to $10,000 per worker for health insurance coverage. So what do you think is going to happen here? And by just providing that coercion of employers in a way that actually benefits the employers, what happened was that employers began to go on a crime spree to avoid, right? They began to cut hours. They began to just shed insurance because they didn't want to pay the extra penalty. Or, I mean, they didn't want to pay the money to insure people. And they were perfectly fine with taking such a small fine at the expense of working people. And so ACA did nothing. The Affordable Care Act did nothing to regulate that. And so that's why still to this day, a lot of employers do not offer health care and are more than willing to say, go to the exchanges. And then what do you do? I mean, what do you do if you make 20, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 per year? Well, now you're paying a lot of money for these exchanges. And the case in point, as I uh, have found out more than a few times. So really the ACA was a privatization scam, Right. The cost of healthcare per person is $9,086 on average, and a quarter of people are suffering from healthcare-related financial woes because of how 
people are uninsured, they're still underinsured, and people can't pay for these costs with this kind of insurance. It's still just all about profit sharing. It's all about cost sharing. I mean, it's all about cost sharing. It's all about profiteering. It is not about healthcare. This is not healthcare. This is just exploitation. It's just corporate and capitalist exploitation. So I said that the only winners have been the healthcare monopolies, really, because people are still struggling. And also, I didn't mention it in this article, but it it this is really what generated the Medicare for all demand, which we still do not have. And we're not going to get under this political arrangement. Like we're not going to get it from a Democrat. We're not going to get it from a Republican. We're not going to get it from the bipartisan capitalist establishment and imperialist establishment. It's really going to take a hard struggle to make something like healthcare, along with all the other uh, social and economic policies that we need in place to improve the lives of working people to actually uh, become a, a staple of this society. Uh, it, it won't come under, I don't believe it'll come under anything that resembles capitalism. I think only a real socialist society can support this. And you find that out when you are confronted with the ways in which and the extent to which the capitalist class headed by people like Barack Obama, Joe Biden, the lengths that they're willing to go to extend corporate and capitalist tentacles into our lives. I mean, the lengths they're willing to go to paint and portray their policies as benevolent while they actually make people suffer even more is quite astounding. And so that's what the Affordable Care Act was. It was a giveaway and it has cemented control of the insurance industry. So anytime a working class person goes to this marketplace, if they make anywhere above the Medicaid limit, they are in for immense pain, right? And these subsidies do not pay for enough. These plans do not cover enough. And so really what the Obama administration has done, Trump, and now into the Biden administration has done is say, nope, we're not going to subsidize healthcare. We are not going to provide healthcare. We will subsidize the corporations. We will subsidize the insurance industry to essentially impose suffering onto you. So I want to talk about that because, I mean, it's the reason why I continue to ask for support for my work, right? It's these concerns, these issues. These are part of my daily life just as much as they are part of yours. So that's why I ask, you know, you support this channel through patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. You support uh, my all of my work, my weekly columns, and uh, all the work that I'm doing with Friends of Socialist China and other places through Patreon. I mean, there's a reason why I, I ask, right? There's a reason why I make it a part of these streams. It's not because I'm you know, trying to run away with money is because, you know, things happen and things continue to happen just, of course, in all of our daily lives. And so I really do appreciate anyone who's able to to provide that support. And it's, you know, I can only imagine I've just started doing this as like full-time independent journalist um, and, you know, someone who's not taking on like a 40 plus hour a week gig. I've just started to find out, oh yeah, you know, you don't get that healthcare provided to you. You got to figure it out on your own. Um, luckily I have a working partner who eventually will get employer healthcare, but you know, it's in these moments I've had twice where it's like, oh yeah, no, this is the reality that so many people face who are working for a wage, whose employers do not give healthcare or give very unfriendly, cheap, 
plans and essentially don't have any right this is this is the society we live in so you know uh, please do continue to support this work patreon.com slash Fong. that's how you uh, keep it going and that's uh, how you keep, uh, keep someone like me from uh, uh, just I don't know uh, going completely uh, mad from the stress <laughs> um, it's it's that support that you've been able to give me over these past couple you know it's been like a year or so since I've been doing a little over a year year and a half now building the support and and certainly it's helped to even think about mitigating some of these uh, costs so so thank you so much comrades for all of that um and, and definitely keep it keep it going if you can and, and and definitely um add your name you know to to the membership uh to support my work i, I really appreciate it at patreon.com slash danny but really i really wanted to talk about the healthcare, right the healthcare situation because it, it it brings you right i mean honestly i'm one of these people that i I didn't used to avoid healthcare so much, but I avoid it more and more and more. And as I get older in my adult life, because I'm just like, damn, you know, even when you do have healthcare, employer-based healthcare, like dental work is expensive. And then, you know, so I've been doing a lot more. And then it just is annoying too, because you go, you know, you got to pay these costs. And then it's like, yeah, the whole system is designed only to maybe find something that's wrong but it's really not to help you be a healthier person, right? So you're just going there when something's wrong. And that that to me is just, I mean, it's not the way I like to live. So I find myself, yeah, avoiding it more and more in my adult life. And it's these experiences with teach, which teach us to do this. I mean, that's a traumatic experience to go uh, to, to get a large bill, to be confronted with this kind of Satan sandwich. Hey, eat from this, tr- eat from this trough or eat from this one, right? It, pay thousands later or pay thousands now right those kind of experiences that working people have to deal with every single day they have their effect on people's mental health and well-being and you know i got a little bit of a a return taste to it yesterday so i definitely wanted to just review a bit about the affordable care act and how it has impacted the lives of working class people and it makes the case for why we need a universal healthcare system, not just Medicare for all, because I, I, I do think Medicare for all is a fine demand. But I do believe we need a nationalized, full, single payer healthcare system, which, you know, can provide free healthcare to everyone. And that's that we need to, these debates, right, about the existence of the insurance industry. Oh, we can keep whatever certain insurance companies around they'll just have a different purpose no 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 no. we need to get rid of the insurance industry we need to get rid of all profit for profit interest in healthcare as just a beginning i think struggle to or a beginning step in getting for profit interest out of all sectors especially around human rights but all sectors of society and of course, broadly economically, that's that's where it will happen last. I mean, that's the, that's the revolution, right? But certainly, as China has showed us, and even you know, people play Cuba is doing it too. Uh, other socialist countries they're showing us Nicaragua. Yeah, the profit motive can have a place, right? It just can't be dominant. 
but the United States, I think, is far beyond, right, the usefulness of the profit motive because, well, it's been a capitalist system for how many centuries? It has advanced to this like highest stage of imperialism, and it has a lot that it owes, right? The U.S. imperialism has a lot that it owes. Black people, right, huge debts to black people, working people around the world. I mean, a huge amount of debt. So I think the situation is a bit different when we talk about the profit motive here, right? Rather than a place like China, developing country, history of imperialism needs to develop its productive forces. The productive forces have been developed here. <laughs> they've been developed and then they've been gutted again, right? So uh, we need to think about extracting the profit motive out of society. And that's uh, that's a big struggle. It's what Amazon labor union struggle is about. It's what the struggle for Medicare for all is about. It's even what the struggle against policing and mass incarceration and repression and war is about extracting the profit motive because it's the profit motive which is requiring the repression and the surveillance and the racism and the white supremacy. We've got to think about it in these terms. But anyway, it's been a great stream today, guys. I'm going to uh, end it here today with those stories. Um, please do, before you go, of course, like the video, share this video, subscribe to the channel, hit the notifications bell to get notified when I'm on. And then, uh, you know, if you're able to subscribe at patreon.com slash Danny Highfall, it's the best way to support the work. Um, so one last announcement this coming Sunday, I'm going to be taking about a week long vacation. So I won't be seeing you probably not until either later that week or uh, early the next week. Um, might be on one more time trying to get something going for maybe Thursday. But if if not, right, um, I'll probably see you guys the week after. So anyway, I'll definitely put an announcement on the page and on all of my various channels. And uh, uh, no, no calling. So somebody has no calling this Sunday. No, I have to actually announce that. So no calling this Sunday because that's when I start to go away. Maybe I'll try to either, maybe I'll try to do it the day before, or maybe um, I'll try to do a couple the following week. We'll see what happens there. But um, definitely this Sunday is is when I start taking a break, and maybe the 7th you'll see me again on here. But if not, you know, I'll definitely uh, make some announcements and, um, yeah, continue onward for the rest of the month. So, Thanks all for coming. Again, make sure you like the video before you go. Subscribe. Hit that notifications bell. And yeah, if you can support patreon.com slash Danny That would be great. Uh, appreciate it. And, and peace out.